On this episode of China Unscripted, Japan is facing an existential crisis over Taiwan. If China invades, Japan has to fight or fall to China. With Japan's elections coming up, Taiwan is a key issue. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganeshda. And joining us today from Japan is Dr. Robert Eldridge. Dr. Eldridge is an expert on Japan's security and diplomacy. He's a senior researcher for the Japan Forum for Strategic Studies in Tokyo. Robert, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So next week, Japan is holding elections for the, the lower house in parliament. And I know you've described this as the most important election ever for Japan. Why is that? Mm. Yes, yeah, so their uh, their elections for the uh, lower house uh, will be held on uh, October thirty first, and I think the next four years are extremely important for the region, uh, and particularly uh, the fate of Taiwan. And Taiwan's security is uh, very much connected to Japan's security and the region's security. The term of a of a lower house member in Japan is four years, uh, unless the prime minister decides to uh, dissolve the parliament. Um, and within Japan, as you know, uh, there are some politicians, not only in the opposition party or parties, but also within the ruling party uh, who are somewhat uh, pro-China or sympathetic to China. Uh, and that has uh, caused a great divide in Japanese politics for much of the post-war years. Uh, as you know, as everyone knows, uh, China's uh, intentions towards uh, Taiwan have gotten stronger and stronger. And earlier this year, in March, the outgoing commander for the Indo-Pacific Command made a statement to uh, the U.S. Senate uh, to the effect that China might advance on on Taiwan not only within a decade, but maybe as early as uh, within six years. Uh, so those six years basically overlap with the next term of the lower house, the next four years. And I think China's uh, not going to wait for six years or 10 years. I think they're going to move very quickly. So I would like to see those that are elected in the upcoming uh, lower house elections here in Japan uh, to solidly be behind uh, supporting uh, or defending uh, Taiwan. Well, so we'll get to what uh, Taiwan means for Japan and the security in the Indo-Pacific in general uh, in, a, in a moment. But just for uh, Americans watching who might not be very familiar with uh, the politics of Japan, who are the major players? Uh, so uh, Japan's parliamentary democracy uh, and uh, uh, the ruling party has been in, uh, it's called the Liberal Democratic Party, has been in power for much of the post-war years. Unlike, for example, in the United States, where we generally have uh, a, a, a change in administrations every four or, or eight years. Uh, in Japan, it, it tends to be the, uh, the conservative uh, Liberal Democratic Party that's, that's dominated things. Uh, they've had a couple of upsets in the past 30 years, uh, but they've uh, been able to return to power either through a coalition government or through uh, taking power itself again. Basically, for the past 20 years, the ruling party, uh, the Liberal Democratic Party, has been in a coalition with a smaller, uh, smaller center, center-right party uh, called Colmeto. And the original meaning of that was clean government party. Unfortunately, though, the Colmeto uh, has acted as a break on much of the legislation that the more conservative Liberal Democratic Party has wanted to pursue, particularly in defense matters. Uh, and so uh, a lot of people uh, that support the ruling party are uh, upset about the idea of a coalition government and particularly a coalition government with a smaller party that's also acting as a break on it. Altogether, there are about nine uh, parties in total in Japan, some very, very small, some once uh, quite large that have gotten smaller 
through attrition over the years. Um, and uh, all of them are, are battling it out right now in the elections. Because of the size of the smaller opposition parties, they can't be in every single constituency. And so uh, basically, um, they've come into a sort of like a, a coalition opposition to uh, coordinate where they're going to fight the ruling party in which district. And uh, so that's kind of where we're at right now. And the campaigning just started on October 19th. Uh, so uh, they have roughly a, a 10 day or 12 day uh, window for the campaign. A 12 day campaign. That's very wow. different than the how, US. How can we bring that to America? <laughs> I, I would like to see it uh, you know, brought to America. There's um, actually a lot of things that Japan does very well with its uh, elections. And one of it is, I think, the very short you know, campaign period. Um, there's uh, a great amount of um, focus on the policy side rather than the personalities. Shocking. Last month in September, uh, Japan had a, a um, party presidency election for the ruling party. Uh, and so that would be the equivalent of one of our primaries back in the United States. And the contrast between a Japanese uh, party primary and a U.S. party primary is uh, staggering. Um, the hatred that is, you know, shot out uh, between, you know, candidates back in the U.S. Uh, and basically, you know, can destroy somebody's political career. You don't really see that here in Japan. And uh, particularly this last election in September, there was a great focus on on uh, a policy uh, debate. And afterwards, when one candidate emerges uh, victorious, it's so far it's always been a male. So uh, he has uh, brought in uh, either all or most of the other rivals uh, into either the government that he forms or the structure of the ruling party. It, it can get heated, but it doesn't get too personal. And then once things are over, they try to you know, incorporate uh, both the ideas and the people and the supporters of those respective candidates uh, you know, back into the fold. Well, speaking of the focus on policy, I know you consider Taiwan to be uh, sort of like a gauge for, politi for politicians in Japan. So why, why is that so important? Yeah, I think, um, well, first of all, historically, Japan has extremely close relations with Taiwan. Uh, as most of your viewers you know, will know, uh, Japan administered, occupied Taiwan from 1895 until 1945. And essentially, the unification of Taiwan, uh, as you know, there were many different uh, you know, uh, groups and uh, types of people that were living in, in Taiwan uh, in the 19th century. They basically formed uh, an identity or a national identity through a central education system that, that Japan provided. The modernization of, of Taiwan, uh, the foundations for Japan provided uh, in that period from 1895 to uh, 1945, you know, helped eradicate opium addiction, um, you know, developed a higher education system, basically helped them, you know, up and down, whether it was in, you know, agriculture or industry, um, the dam system, the dams, uh, irrigation, um, you know, uh, Formosa and rice, all of these things uh, Japan uh, either brought to Taiwan or helped uh, develop Taiwan. Many of the older generation, you know, still speak Japanese. Uh, and uh, President Lee, who passed away last year, you know, had studied in Japan and pre-war pre Japan, uh, was fluent in, in Japanese, uh, published in Japanese, read in Japanese. You know, the interactions I had, you know, with him at his home, you know, we, we did our discussions in Japanese, uh, even though he was fluent in English as well. So there's a really strong connection. Um, the public in Japan very much supports Taiwan and, you know, Taiwan's, you know, autonomy uh, and uh, its future. Um, I would think or I do think that the Japanese public is actually um, farther ahead than 
Japanese politicians are in some regards. The Japanese politicians are, are reluctant because of China to take a bold stand on Taiwan, on most things, whether it be uh, Taiwan's admission to TPP or to international organizations or to have a Japanese version of the Taiwan Relations Act, you know, things like that. Um, and uh, I hope that, you know, at this election, that the, the Japanese um, politicians catch up with the Japanese public. So for me, it's a, you know, it's a litmus test about whether the politicians first are listening to the public and secondly, understand that, you know, historically rich connection that Japan has had with Taiwan. And then the most pressing issue, though, is that um, a, you know, contingency in Taiwan will directly affect Japan's security. Um, and uh, whether it's at the outset or partway through and a, a vote for Taiwan is a vote for Japan. And if a politician doesn't understand that here in Japan, I don't think he or she should be elected to the to the parliament. Is Taiwan part of the discussion that's happening as part of the campaigning for this election? Uh, not so much, uh, but I've been um, I've been requesting people to uh, address that or talk about that. And uh, I recently wrote in a commentary an op-ed in the English language press here. Uh, and then earlier this month, I wrote a similar op-ed in, in the Japanese language in one of their major uh, newspapers to bring attention to that. Um, I also speak at a lot of different um, you know, lectures and, and events, and I, tr I try to raise that point as well uh, with the audience. Uh, as a non-Japanese citizen, I don't think it's my, um, you know, obviously my right to, uh, you know, interject too far in a in a Japanese election, but there are people of um, you know similar mindedness when it comes to that. It seems in recent months there has been almost an unprecedented level of support for Taiwan in Japan. Uh, you know, high-ranking politicians talking about we have to defend. Taiwan, encouraging the global community to defend Taiwan, um, establishing missile defense systems on some of Japan's lower islands, really like right next to Taiwan. But so you're saying there is still an element in Japanese political society that uh, is not going in that direction. Uh, that's correct, unfortunately. So uh, the more outspoken politicians tend to be on the the more conservative side of the conservative party. Uh, and many of them um, either have a connection with the, uh, having served in the, uh, the post-war military called the Japan Self-Defense Forces. Uh, one example would be uh, Mr. Sato Masahisa, or the recent statement by the uh, former Deputy Prime Minister, Mr. Aso Taro, or the statement by the uh, Vice Defense Minister, Mr. Nakayama Yasuhide. Those three uh, are in particular, in particular outspoken on the Taiwan issue. The latter two, Mr. Aso and Mr. Nakayama, have um, long historical ties with Taiwan uh, from their, you know, from their uh, father's generation. And so they've always had a very uh, affection, affinity for Taiwan. Um, many people have sympathy with that view, but as a politician, for whatever reason, they may not, may, may not be able to uh, you know, state things in that way. But um, those statements have had you know, very strong uh, support here in Japan. And specifically, the statements were, uh, with regard to Mr. Aso, he talked about a contingency affecting Taiwan has a direct impact on Japan's survival. Um, in American political terms, that would not be a you know an overly bold or strong statement. But in post-war Japan, that's a very uh, clear and bold statement. Uh, Mr. Nakayama, in an interview or a discussion with an organization in in D.C., uh, he talked about 
Taiwan not only being a friend of Japan, but also its family, its brother. And that, that's a very clear uh, you know, statement uh, to support uh, Taiwan. And then Mr. Sato, who was a colonel in the uh, ground self-defense forces, um, from his own you know, experiences, he has a uh, you know, clear understanding of the, the geostrategic importance of Taiwan in the region. And he's called for, among other things, a, um, a Japan version of the Taiwan Relations Act. Uh, he's also called for what's called a two plus two dialogue with Taiwan. So in other words, the defense ministers and the foreign secretaries to uh, discuss about uh, a, you know Taiwan situation. Uh, he's also called for uh, what's known as the guidelines, which would uh, facilitate U.S.-Japan military um, coordination in a Taiwan Strait contingency. So um, those kind of statements would have been difficult to imagine a few years ago, but it, uh, it shows, as your, your question alludes to, that um, they are moving in that direction. What has changed that they're able to make those statements now when they wouldn't have a few years ago? Probably, um, probably three or four things. One is that uh, Taiwan you know, continues to develop as a democracy. You know, when we think of, and particularly when Americans think of Taiwan, particularly older Americans, they may be thinking of the pre, you know, 1996 or pre-1990s Taiwan uh, with the Chiang Kai-shek era or the, you know, the uh, lack of democracy, the dictatorship period. Um, whereas the Taiwan that the younger generation knows is the you know, the democratic Taiwan and the Taiwan in which, um, you know, identity of the people of the island are Taiwanese, not as Chinese. So I think more and more people uh, in Japan recognize that, that Taiwan sees itself as uh, Taiwanese uh, and that is uh, democratic and shares the, you know, the values that, uh, that Japan has you know, democracy, uh, human rights, rule of law. Uh, a second aspect has to do with the, um, the mutual support that the countries have given to one another during uh, humanitarian crises in the country. Uh, Taiwan was, uh, I believe, the largest donor of aid to Japan after the March 11th uh, earthquake and tsunami that impacted Japan in, in 2011, that really positively affected Japanese people. They were extremely touched by that, and um, and they've wanted to, uh, you know, continue to help Taiwan in a number of ways. Uh, a third thing, obviously, has to do with uh, with China's, uh, you know, aggressive intentions uh, towards the region, uh, and that particularly the um, the growth of its military and the constant pressure that China puts on Japan's borders. Um, as you mentioned earlier about the defense of the southwestern islands in Japan, uh, from the southernmost island of Yonoguni, you can actually see Taiwan. That's how close it is. And um, more and more uh, Japanese people are understanding you know, that. And then finally, I think um, events in Hong Kong have really impacted uh, the Japanese public uh, because they see what's happening in Hong Kong. They're afraid it's going to uh, happen to Taiwan. If it happens to Taiwan, Okinawa is next, and then mainland Japan is next. Uh, so uh, more and more people are understanding that connection, uh, you know, between uh, you know peace and prosperity abroad with you know what happens in their own country. So what does it mean for Japan if China's communist forces take over Taiwan? You said Okinawa is next. How, do, how, how does that work? Um, well, most likely uh, in a Taiwan contingency, uh, China would also be striking at um, either U.S. facilities in, in Japan, of which there are quite a few in Okinawa, uh, or um, taking out uh, Japanese military facilities or civilian facilities that would 
be able to lend any support to assisting or defending uh, Thai- Taiwan. So from the very beginning, uh, Japan uh, would most likely be under attack as well. Uh, so uh, on an immediate sense, that's the first thing that would happen. Um, let's say that unfortunately, uh, a Chinese you know, strike on Taiwan was successful where China actually took over Taiwan. Um, you know, obviously, all of uh, Taiwan's infrastructure, uh, and particularly its industrial uh, capabilities, would then fall to uh, Chinese hands. Um, China would get control, essentially, of the, the key part of the first island chain. Uh, and then that would allow China to station forces on Taiwan, and then from Taiwan to then move into the not only the Western Pacific, but into the second and third uh, island chains, you know, basically approaching Hawaii. As it moves, you know, further eastward towards Hawaii, uh, that means Japan's north and south sea lanes and, uh, you know, traffic, whether it's military or economic, would be completely disrupted by the, uh, you know, by the, you know, large Chinese forces that are going to be there. Um, I think it also it will affect the image and impressions of the United States that uh, the U.S. was not able to defend Taiwan. And that will cause a shift, I think, in, in Japanese opinion uh, to back to uh, maybe cooperating with China. And so there'll be essentially the U.S. would be pushed out of the region. Uh, Japan would have uh, basically two options to fight it out on its own or to go along with with uh, with China. So um, and that would be you know bad for the region and the world. Um, China would also be able to turn its forces on on the Philippines, acquire its natural resources. Um, and then, you know, the rest of Southeast Asia would be. Uh, you know, basically made into a, you know, Chinese lake. So uh, it would be a very bad situation if that were to happen. And Japan would be one of the countries that would suffer the worst from it. So considering how much is at stake for Japan, if China were to take over Taiwan, how is it that there are Japanese politicians who might not be supportive of Taiwan that are pro-China? I think there's basically probably two groups that fall into that category. Uh, one would be those that have that are either pro-China for ideological reasons uh, or they're pro-China because uh, they've basically been uh, captured in something called elite capture, where they're under the, uh, the control or influence of a, of a foreign country. And they may be, you know, under that that control for financial reasons or or a, a personally embarrassing or politically embarrassing uh, compromising situation that they found themselves in. Unfortunately, uh, many of the uh, politicians and business leaders in Japan are said to be in a situation like that where they've been in a very compromising situation uh, under you know, under uh, Chinese influence, let's put it that way. Um, so that would be one group, those that are under Chinese influence uh, or sympathetic China. The second group uh, would be those that are just unfortunately ignorant about the geopolitical and geostrategic uh, consequences or the significance of, of Taiwan. Um, in either case, I make the point in my my uh, respective uh, commentaries and op-eds that those two types of individuals should not be sent to Tokyo to represent the people of Japan. In other words, if they're representing China or they're so ignorant of the geostrategic situation um, that they would have to start studying once they got into office, in either case, it's, you know, it's, it's too late. Uh, they shouldn't be there. Well, you said that uh, earlier that like when China goes for Taiwan, they would likely attack Japan or Japanese forces as well. Is that something that's not really been considered? Because, I mean, what is that? What is the thinking there that Japan would not strike back after it was attacked? 
Uh, there, there are discussions in mil- military, political, uh, strategic circles about that. Uh, Japan has certain capabilities to do it, uh, but it's lacking in other capabilities. So um, I, I don't want to go into, into that detail uh, response right now, um, but that would be one aspect of it. The, the other um, problem, and this precedes that strategic discussion, is that quite often the portrayal of a Taiwan contingency in Japan through mainstream media lenses is that a Taiwan contingency is a U.S.-China issue, that it has nothing to do with Japan. And unfortunately, the mainstream media uh, makes that story up constantly. So every time Taiwan's reported in Japan, it tends to be introduced as, um, you know, the result of tensions between uh, the United States and and China, rather than as a real existential threat to Japan itself. Why is that reported that way? Well, I think, first of all, the the Japanese media, uh, like uh, our media back home in the States, uh, you know, in some cases uh, tends to be bought off by the highest, uh, you know, bidder. Uh, So some some, uh, media outlets are, I think, influenced by, uh, you know, by Chinese, um, by the Chinese market or um, advertisers who do business with, you know, with China. Um, the Japanese Business Federation has immense uh, political support in Japan, uh, and they are very closely aligned with China. Uh, they see that you know the Chinese market is a good thing. Uh, they want to have close ties with China. They try to. Um, uh, prevent politicians from raising, you know, the, the issues that China uh, represents for Japan. Uh, and similarly, the companies that advertise with the Japanese media will tend not to go in that direction about uh, the threat that, that China, you know, presents. Um, but the, and I, th- I think the other, the other thing is just uh, more ideological. Uh, the media here tends to be, uh, you know, on the left and has a very, uh, maybe pacifist view of the world that uh, China's intentions are, you know, benign, or they're certainly not as uh, malign as as some of us think they are. Um, so probably there's a profit motive or a profit incentive not to talk about uh, China in those terms, and then there may be those ideological uh, aspects as well. And then there's a third, more nefarious uh, angle to it, and that's that. Um, there are certain agreements that uh, the Chinese government has worked out with Japanese media that in order to station uh, correspondence uh, or to have offices in China, they're not allowed to report uh, on either certain things or in a certain way. And uh, unfortunately, the Japanese media outlets, even the conservative ones, uh, tend to follow that to the, you know, the, uh, um, you know, to the letter. And so a lot of information doesn't get out of China into Japan that um, Japanese viewers you know, should be able to hear. This really sounds like the Chinese Communist Party's playbook in all other countries, you know, influence the business sector. They influence the politicians, directly buy off politicians, buy off the media entities. This could be any country. Exactly. Exactly. And the more that, you know, those of us in you know, in the United States or myself in Japan uh, and other countries, you know, we explore more about uh, Chinese political warfare, you know, for example, uh, we can, and the more we communicate about that, the more we could see the patterns that have developed. How does the Japanese public see China? I'm curious because like the, what you're talking about, the media influencing the politicians, the business people influencing the media and the politicians, like has that reached the Japanese public? Do they also see China as kind of benign? I'm also wondering because there is such um, nationalistic anti-Japan sen- sentiment 
like used in in mainland China all the time by the Chinese Communist Party. Does that bleed over or is it more what they're hearing through Japanese media? Um, very much like what, you know, what's happening trend wise in the U.S. as well, that there's been a, a shift away from mainstream media to alternative media and Internet media. Um, the same things happen, you know, fortunately in Japan, too. And so uh, as I alluded to at the beginning, the Japanese public, I think, is actually far ahead of of uh politicians, for example, and certainly far ahead of the, the mainstream media on these international issues. And so uh, very few people that I am aware of, you know, buy what the media is telling them, um, which is a very healthy thing because you should always question uh, any information that you hear or be, you know, skeptical of it. And uh, the, for the most part, I think the Japanese people are. Um, now, Today, by by chance, and when I say today, it's uh, October 20th here in Japan, um, in the evening news, uh, there was a report about a, uh, a brand new public opinion poll that was done by a private uh, NPO. And they, they've been doing regular polling uh, of Chinese-Japanese uh, relations, uh, you know, as far back, maybe as a decade ago, I remember seeing one of their polls in 2012, but it, it shows that 90.1% uh, of the Japanese people uh, have uh, negative views of China. Wow. wow. Yeah. So that is actually higher than in the United States. And you, you, you all would have seen the uh, Pew Research uh, data uh, earlier this year, I think. So um, obviously it's just one, it's one data point. So I uh, have to do you know more research into it, but that that's been very consistent. And back in the poll that I alluded to before from 2012, um, the interestingly, the uh, public opinion in Okinawa Prefecture, which has been really um, really victimized by Chinese political warfare over the years, uh, particularly the past. Uh, 18, 19 years or so, um, public opinion is actually very uh, strongly uh, strong against China too. And it was stronger than mainland Japanese public opinion. So um, basically that means that the closer you are to China, the more you know wary, the more cautious you're going to be of them. So uh, the public doesn't always buy what the politicians and the media uh, says. Well, so I can see why so much is riding on these upcoming elections. Like, for instance, if a, a, a pro-China or a friendly China group of politicians get into power, like that would, I, I would see that having a tremendous impact on American interests in Japan. For instance, you know, China has vowed it will take Taiwan, period, even if it has to use military force. Uh, U.S. forces are stationed in Okinawa. I can't imagine that China would just allow U.S. troops to be stationed there and not, you know, fight Chinese troops in an invasion. So for a Japanese uh, parliament to allow for this kind of pro-China view, it would either have to accept that China would attack Japanese territory or they would try to kick out American forces. Like, it seems like you have those two choices. Right. Well, in Japan, uh, things are never black and white, uh, unfortunately. Uh, they tend to be gray. So the, the middle option is to not think about a, a situation or a scenario like that, to put their heads in the sand. And unfortunately, I kid you not, a lot of them do that. And so... Wow. Um, it, it may be it may be a, a uh, you know national uh, trend or or what have you, but Japanese people tend not to prepare for the worst, and they don't want to think about the worst. And so, until they've experienced something, they tend not to prepare for it or or to make adjustments for that. And I see that constantly. I've been here for thirty one years. 
I see that constantly. So it's kind of after something happens is when they start, you know, addressing the issue. And that it's not only Japan, it's other countries as well. But I think that that uh, that national trait is is much more prevalent here in, in Japan. Uh, but uh, more and more they're aware of that, you know, that potential. And they've they've basically always been aware of that potential that uh, China, Chinese uh, forces would try to strike, uh, you know, U.S. forces here. Um, in the past, though, China didn't have those capabilities to do it. Uh, now the situation's different. They do have those capabilities. And so um, that, that will trigger uh, more debates like this, I think. Um, the opposition parties are very weak, though, in Japan. And so um, if we had a debate like this in the 1960s when the opposition was very strong, then that threat of kicking out for American forces would have been much more real. It's less real now because Japan is so dependent on the U.S.-Japan alliance. Um, but there are things that, that I try to argue that Japan and the U.S. should be doing uh, now, avoiding a, an Armageddon-like situation and instead more proactively um, you know, uh, pushing on the uh, deterrence front. So, for example, on October 4th, as I think you covered with uh, your show, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of Chinese uh, warplanes entered Taiwan's 80s. And uh, the Japan response, in my opinion, and the U.S. response was extremely weak. Uh, on October 5th, the next day, the new administration of Prime Minister Kishida uh, they made a very bland statement that the two parties need to, you know, work it out peacefully. The two parties being Taiwan and and uh, and Communist China, and that Japan would continue to watch the situation closely. Uh, that was uh, a very weak statement. It's in line with what they've said in the past, but I think that the times are different now. Uh, so what I think. Uh, Japan and the U.S. should have done at that time were th at least three things. And basically to uh, raise the stakes for China, that if it did something like that, again, there's going to be consequences. So the first thing Ch uh, Japan should have done was uh, name China and criticize it publicly. Secondly, uh, U.S. Uh, warplanes, not all of them, but uh, a lot of them, as well as the reconnaissance planes that are in in Okinawa, as well as mainland Japan, uh, they should have been relocated to Taiwan. And then the third thing uh, would be that the um, U.S. and Japanese governments would invite uh, Taiwanese forces to participate in the multilateral training that was going on in the South China Seas at the exact same time. So China would have gone ballistic. But China needs to be told uh, that there are going to be consequences every time it does something to Taiwan like that. And until, you know, the two countries stand up to that bully, uh, you know, we're going to see, we're going to continue to see China doing that. Well, so I know in the post-war constitution of Japan, there's a lot of um, restrictions on how Japan can use its self-defense force. They technically don't have a military. Uh, how How does that affect what Japan can and can't do as far as China and Taiwan? Uh, if uh, if China were to uh, directly attack uh, Japan, then its self defense, you know, clause would kick in. Any nation has the right to self defense. Um, over the years, it's expanded its legislation on what constitutes a threat to Japan and how to employ uh, the forces. So. Um, as Prime Minister also uh, mentioned that I alluded to before, that you know a threat or a attack on Taiwan uh, would have a direct impact on Japan's survival. Therefore, under the 2015 legislation or the interpretation of that, um, the self-defense forces could be deployed. The question is, how would they be deployed? Um, and there are no uh, real guidelines about that between the U.S. and Japan, 
uh, and uh, there's no uh, defense arrangement between Japan and Taiwan. Uh, the relations between the two countries were cut in 1972 when the U.S. recognized the People's Republic of, of China. Japan went a little bit further and uh, informally cut relations with Taiwan in 1972. I think that was premature, but they went ahead and did that. Uh, and um, so what they need to do is, uh, if they're not going to re-recognize Taiwan, uh, at the at the bare minimum, they should uh, uh, try to have a similar uh, Taiwan Relations Act. So um, Japan is a very it's a country that emphasizes um, foundational legislation to allow it to do things. So in the United States, basically, if there isn't a law that stri strictly forbids us from doing something, the interpretation is that basically we can do it. Um, whereas in Japan, it's the opposite. Unless they have a law that allows them to specifically do something, they interpret it in a way that then they can't do it. So uh, that's, you know, it's like a positive and a negative interpretation of things. So without a Taiwan Relations Act, the way that the U.S. does, what, how does Japan like interact with Taiwan? There's a, a similar arrangement as far as a uh, a unofficial, you know, diplomatic, economic, cultural uh, uh, office in Taiwan, and the Taiwanese government, uh, the Republic of China government, has representation similar to an embassy and consulates around the country. So uh, I live in Western Japan. And there's a Taiwanese consulate, uh, not formally named that, but uh, in all, for all due, you know, practical purposes, that's what it is uh, in my area. And there's another one uh, not too far away. So it's very similar to the U.S. The uh, uh, U.S. has the American Institute of Taiwan and Taiwanese, you know, representatives are, are in, in D.C., for example. There is a... Uh, there are retired or former military officials that are located in, in Taiwan that are, are Japanese who are basically unofficial attaches. But everything is, you know, unofficial, unofficial. Uh, and um, politicians are allowed to interact. Uh, and um, uh, former President Lee, for example, uh, has visited uh, Japan. Uh, and uh, a couple of years before he passed away, he visited Okinawa again. Um, there are sister city relationships, very robust relationships. Um, there's a great deal of trade uh, between the two countries. So there is a lot of interaction, but it's, it's essentially at an unofficial level, except at the political level, at, at local local levels or between uh, elected representatives. So when you say that Japan needs a Taiwan Relations Act type of law, would are you mostly talking about like how it talks about, you know, the U.S. needing to provide like defense capabilities for Taiwan, like, like spelling out the defense aspect of the Japan-Taiwan relationship? Uh, that, that is something I would like to see. And there, there is, uh, there are several drafts of a Taiwan Relations Act uh, that exist. Uh, the first one was written in, in 2005, and the most recent one, uh, the most recent one I haven't seen, uh, but the one before that was in 2020. Uh, and so there are different versions of it, and they're all given different names. One might be called the uh, Taiwan Foundation Act. One is the Taiwan. Um, Relations Act, and one is the, the Taiwan uh, Interchange or Exchange uh, Act. Um, and the different names kind of reflect the effort to lower the, the political tension that that could produce. So, for example, uh, anything that has a, a defense connotation to it would be, the wording would be very, very general. Uh, to basically allow it to 
you know, get passed in in Parliament, for example. Uh, the intent being that once it's passed, they can build onto it and add to it. So that's sort of the the idea of having a a very you know weakened or weak version of the bill. Then it could grow in the future. One thing that there's general agreement on is that you know there should be robust uh, economic and trade relations, robust political and sister city relations, uh, robust disaster cooperation areas and education exchange and stuff like that. Um, the big divergence uh, among people who talk about this is whether a defense angle should be included in it this time or not. Um, if they're going to do it, I'd like to see it included because, again, they don't have much time to move forward with this. Um, and the reason I, I emphasize that they don't have much time has to do with the statement that was made earlier this year in March by uh, Admiral Davidson in this in the Senate hearings. Um, the reason that he said six years is not has not been made public, but based on my own research, uh, my theory is that because China's focused so much on the development of its um, satellite killing technologies, that um, China has a real advantage in that area. And the U.S. won't be able to deploy a satellite protection system until about uh, 2026. Uh, and so the so-called six-year window, if we take the beginning of 2021 and the end of 2026, so in other words, 2027, that's probably the six-year window that he was talking about. And as you know, we can't fight a modern war without satellites because they provide, you know, the GPS and the and the communications and all that. So China's at a real advantage right now. Next year in February, it'll be hosting the Winter Olympics. So, you know, you can debate whether it would make a move at that time. Uh, Russia certainly did with, with Crimea, but whether China would move at this point or not, not sure. And then in the fall next year, around this time, the Communist Party will be having its, you know, its its gathering. So, you know, is it going to move before then or most likely after then? Personally, I think it'll be shortly after that, but uh, I'm not a specialist on China by any means. So let's just say for the sake of argument that they were to move a year from now, from 2022 until after that, they're not going to wait until 2026 when the when the satellite protection system, defense system is being introduced. They're going to move a, a lot more quickly. And I would think they would move um, quickly before Japan can get its act together to create a Taiwan Relations Act. And the guidelines that would allow U.S.-Japan cooperation in a Taiwan contingency before that's formatted and, and they've... Uh, They've trained for that. So kind of the 2022, 23, maybe at the latest 2024, to me, is that window that we need to be focusing on. So you're saying that if we want to go on vacation in Taiwan, we better do it soon. Uh, yeah, very soon. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, I hope it doesn't get to that point. And that's why, you know, deterrence is so extremely important. and. Uh, sometimes deterrence is military, but it can be political, it can be economic, it could be, uh, you know, uh, diplomatic. So there's so many areas that needs to be done. But the more that Taiwan can be brought into, uh, you know, international society and international institutions, uh, and the more the more countries recognize that uh, Taiwan, you know, is a legitimate player in the international community, and that it's independence or autonomy is vital to the interests of the, the global community. Uh, I'm, I'm very worried in that regard. So we, we need to move forward quickly on that. Uh, there's a final thing I think we need to talk about as far as Japanese politics go. Um, there's a very important position called the Minister of uh, Infrastructure, Land and Transportation. Uh, you talk about that a lot. Why, why is that so important? And how is that affected in the upcoming election? 
Great. Thank, thank you very much. Um, so I uh, recently uh, wrote a, a commentary on that, on that issue too. So uh, within Japan, uh, because of government restructuring that took place uh, approximately 20 years ago, the Japanese Coast Guard falls under what's called the Ministry of, of Infrastructure, Land, and Transportation, or MILT. And the Japanese Coast Guard is essentially the front line for uh, defending uh, Japan's uh, territorial waters. Uh, and one of the most important islands or set of islands that uh, Japan is trying to defend are the Senkaku Islands, which China, you know, all of a sudden around 1970 started declaring that it was that the Senkakus belonged to China, although everything it had done in the past uh, suggested otherwise. Um, so in my opinion, China does not have any legitimate claims to the islands whatsoever. And I wrote a book on that topic uh, six, seven years ago. So the Coast Guard's on the front lines of that. And the uh, organization that basically has jurisdiction of the Coast Guard is the MILT. And the minister in charge of that uh, will essentially make the decisions about how the, the Coast Guard will respond to certain situations and whether to escalate or de-escalate, whether to enforce Japanese sovereignty, uh, Japanese administrative rights, um, you know, all the, the norms that international countries expect. Um, that minister may decide not to, uh, you know, anger China or uh, impact China or escalate with China. Um, so that's a, a total decision that the you know, that the government, you know, would th theoretically, you know, stand by or support. Unfortunately, in this case, the minister belongs to a junior coalition party that has extremely close ties with China. And they were the, the party uh, that was essentially the bridge between Japan and China opening up uh, ties and relations in the 1970s. Um, and again, they're called uh, Colmato. Um, since 2012, a Colmato representative, again, they have close ties with China, has been the head of the ministry for the past nine years. And um, there's a great concern that the Coast Guard is not able to defend Japan's interests because of the minister's ties with with China, uh, and that would be as you know essentially the equivalent of you know our you know minister or our defense secretary you know being you know at the beck and call of a foreign you know foreign government. Um, in any democracy, it's best to have you know, either change in government on a regular basis or at least a, a structure where one party isn't always controlling, you know, one government agency. Uh, because you can imagine what would happen, the corruption, the lack of transparency, the lack of accountability. So on that basis alone, there should be a, a healthy rotation of, of people. Uh, but unfortunately, that hasn't taken place. And then on top of that, that political party has close ties with China. And I'm very, very you know, concerned about that. And I'm not the only one. There are many people in Japan that have uh, voiced concerns about that. Unfortunately, the culture doesn't allow them to really speak up in public about that. And so uh, it, it took somebody you know, from the outside to you know, specifically write about that. So with all this Chinese influence in Japan, I think that's that's, you know, a huge that affects American interests. And, you know, really where you see that kind of on the on the surface is in Okinawa. So can can you tell us a little bit about the situation there? Right. So, um, you know, as probably most of your viewers will know, uh, we've had a presence. The U.S. has had a presence in Okinawa, you know, uh, since the Battle of Okinawa. So uh, 76 years we have some of our most uh, 
you know, strategic or important uh, facilities in Okinawa, Kadena uh, Air Base and Futenma Air Station being uh, a couple of them. The opposition to the U.S. base presence and war in general has always been a strong element of the the uh, you know identities of of the residents of Okinawa and the and the political discussions that take place down there. Um, Okinawa has also had uh, close historical ties with China uh, in in the past, and many of the people who discuss those historical ties painted in very positive or glowing light. And in the past few decades, there's been a you know real effort to um, you know bridge any gaps with with China uh, between Okinawa and China. In particular, there was a mayor who later became a governor in Okinawa, and he passed away three years ago, um, who uh, became an honorary citizen of, of um, Fukien province uh, as a sister, uh, sister state, a sister city relationship. And he was very much wined and dined by Chinese officials. Um, and he arranged a lot of contracts for for um, for Chinese organizations to operate in Okinawa. Uh, he was uh, allegedly, you know, honey trapped, uh, you know, quite a bit and his associates uh, and his business associates as well. So he was a prime example of elite capture. Um, the uh, His successor is also on the the far left uh, of, of politics down there. And they've developed a, you know, very close working relationship with uh, China on uh, economic matters and investment and trade and tourism, uh, particularly prior to COVID. Uh, the largest amount of, of uh, foreign tourists to Okinawa were Chinese. Uh, and when Chinese enter Okinawa, and in some cases in Japan too, there isn't really too many searches that go, you know, go on with their luggage or with their purposes in country. So there's a, a concern that these individuals uh, have been working closely with uh, anti-base forces in Okinawa, uh, and uh, the opposition uh, forces have delayed. Uh, certain movements in Okinawa, the construction of certain facilities, uh, and there's uh, known to be uh, quite a bit of spying on U.S. Uh, bases in Okinawa and uh, observing the movement of, of uh, personnel and equipment. So this information is getting uh, back to, uh, to China, unfortunately. So Okinawa, for many people, has presented essentially been a window about what could happen in mainland Japan with, um, with Chinese influence uh, in the prefecture. And on the opposite end of Japan, in uh, the prefecture of Hokkaido, uh, Chinese have been very active in buying up land within Japan, both for investment purposes, natural resources, but also uh, land that is adjacent to Japanese military facilities. And so they're able to essentially spy on, on Japanese movements or Japanese military movements. Uh, so there's been a lot of uh, nefarious activities in, uh, you know, in Japan by uh, Chinese spies and, uh, you know, government officials. I, I mean, is the U.S. military concerned about what's happening in Okinawa? Like, is, the, is there anything the U.S. government can do about this? Or because it's in Japan, it's kind of difficult politically. Uh, the, well, yeah, Japan is a sovereign country and the U S returned, uh, Okinawa prefecture to Japan in 1972. So anything that would impact Japanese sovereignty, uh, and, or override Japanese sovereignty, uh, no, the U S can't do anything in that regard, but the two countries can work at sharing greater information uh, on you know on these issues, and the U.S. Uh, 
you know, military in Japan is very much concerned about it. My experience um, uh, has been that um, there, the U.S. government officials, U.S. military, uh, tend to be overwhelmed or overpowered by the language challenges of being able to truly, you know, follow and monitor a lot of the things that are going on. Um, also, and this goes back uh, eight years ago during the Obama administration, when I would raise certain issues with certain officials in Tokyo uh, on the State Department side, they were oblivious to what was going on. Uh, and there was almost like uh, a sense of denial that they didn't want to accept that information. Um, and I believe you you had uh, uh, Professor Kerry Gershanik on your show uh, before, who discussed uh, his book on political warfare. He talks about the, ver the exact same thing uh, with his interactions with U.S. government officials, that there was a, a sense of disbelief that they, they didn't want to even consider that option. Um, that may have changed in recent years, uh, you know, here in Japan uh, among U.S. government officials. So I'm not sure, uh, but there's a, a huge, I think, uh, gap in what's actually happening and what uh, U.S. government officials are aware of. That is not comforting. <laughs> Definitely not. Well, I think we're all going to keep a pretty close eye on how the Japanese elections go. Uh, there's obviously a lot on the line. Thanks a lot for joining us and, and telling us about this. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And I, I very much, you know, as I said before, I enjoy your show and I, I hope it continues. I appreciate that. And we'll put a link to uh, your article in the description below. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Well, that's that's another one of those interviews that really like shows the world is on the brink right now. I'm yeah, m like his whole breakdown of the timeline with like the satellites. Yeah, that was very freaky. Yeah. I mean, I think I mean, we could hardly say that we have our heads in the sand, but you know, thinking about something 6 years away is different than some thinking about something one year or two years away. Well, right? speak for yourself because I have my head firmly in the sand. <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah, I mean, we have talked a lot about, um, you know, China's satellite warfare. They're trying to do, you know, assassin's mace kind of things and like the vulnerabilities of U.S. satellites. But I didn't really know about like that specific timeline of, oh, we don't really have a way to protect our satellites. We might by 2026 and China might try and do something before then. Yeah, it's not that far away. I mean, think about it. Last week in China Uncensored, we like reused a clip from an episode that you did back in 2015 about the 2022 Olympics. And at the time, you were like, who's excited about the Olympics seven years from now? And now and here we are. Yeah, here we are. Yeah, because, yeah, like as 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 he was saying, like, you know, uh, it, it probably won't happen till after the Olympics because just because of like weather reasons you can't really launch an invasion of taiwan until either march or april i forget exactly when that window is um and so then the question is would xi jinping try and do it then before the big party meeting where he's supposed to be reelected, or would he wait till after who knows i do not want to make any predictions right now right. i mean of course also you got to keep in mind that even though ian easton told us about the sort of April and October windows for invasion across the Taiwan Strait due to weather concerns, that doesn't mean like, oh, well, it's only going to start in one of those months because there are lots of other invasion-y type things that they could do to throw everyone off if everyone's only prepared for those windows. Great, Matt. Thanks. I'm also... I'm just saying we should be on our toes. Yeah, no, that's very true. I, I mean, probably they're still not going to do it before the Olympics. Although that would be quite a thing, right? If they did try to invade Taiwan before the Olympics and then... It's a surprise attack. <laughs> and then the IOC was like, ah, just have it there we're anyway. We're apolitical. You yeah, know. We're, we need to be politically neutral. We, You know, the world's a complicated place. Yeah, well, as Dr. Eldridge said, like there's the example of Russia and Crimea and the... Their Olympics, they just they just did it anyways. So it is possible. 
It is possible. Believe, Shelley. Anything is possible. Um, rainbows, unicorns, and a Taiwan invasion before the Olympics. I'm going to go watch Ted Lasso now to cheer myself. <laughs> I don't have those kind of indulgences. I just live in the bitterness with my black coffee. <laughs> Thanks for watching China Unscripted. <laughs> we laugh because we cry. I'm, I'm Chris Chapel. I'm Shelly Chung. And I'm Matt Ganesta. We'll talk to you next time. We're fine. We're fine. We're good. <laughs>